Well, we are in a series in the book of Revelation, and um, you know, the only unfortunate thing about being in a series in the book of Revelation is that there are a lot of caveats that I should say about everything I'm going to say, but I've already said them, and I can't just repeat them every week, or I'll just be re-preaching all the previous sermons. And uh, so we don't want to do that, but I do want to take a moment just to, uh, before we get started, to kind of think through what our approach to the book of Revelation is, because generally speaking, when you start talking about the book of Revelation, people pretty much go mad, um, and, and preachers especially go crazy. And uh, we want to avoid that, I mean, at least I do, and I'd like for us as a congregation, in the midst of the chaotic times that we live in, to remain uh, sane and walking out our Christian walk in a godly way. Um, a few weeks ago, when we began back into this series, and of course, way back last fall when we started the first part of the series, um, I, I, I took a few moments to talk about some of the people that are somewhat fringe in the Christian world that were predicting days and times when Jesus was returning, and, and of course, none of them came to pass, as would be expected, but lest we think that the problem is just a few fringe kooks, uh, who speculate on dates of the Lord's return and not mainstream Christian. Here's a story about a man that I think we all rightfully respect. He is now with the Lord. Um, but in 1949, to a Los Angeles crowd, two days after the world knew Russia had successfully detonated a nuclear weapon, Billy Graham declared that the end was no more than five years away. He did revise it a year later to say that it was only two years or less away. The problem is not actually that he got it wrong. I mean, that's a problem at some level, to be sure. But the problem, which is one that I had too, and I'm sure Billy Graham realized the error of his ways and changed like I did, because I was doing the same nonsense, except nobody had ever heard of me, and I certainly wasn't speaking to a crowd in Los Angeles. Um, the problem is to think that Scripture ever intended for us to get it right. That, that, that was somehow the purpose of the book of Revelation and or several other texts in the Bible. Um, I, I think we can accurately say that he did not get the day, the time, nor even the season, if you want to nitpick over that, right. <laughs> Why? Because we're not supposed to, uh, to keep it simple. Revelation never intended to give us a timeline of end-time events, but to unveil, that's what the word actually means, apocalypse, which is how we, what we translate to Revelation, to unveil what is really happening in a world where good people suffer at the hands of evil empires. Revelation was not written so we could speculate about when the end is coming, how it is coming, or who the major actors are. It is written to help us understand what is happening in the world today, just as it helped the people of John's time understand what was happening in their world. The authors of a book titled Unveiling Empire, Reading Revelation Then and Now, speak to the purpose of Revelation this way. They say, Revelation is a call to have faith in God rather than empire. Now, where it says empire, because we don't think in terms of empires, just substitute the word nation. Okay, And you'll have the same thought. Revelation is a call to have faith in God rather than nation. The, the divine pretensions of pharaohs, kings, and emperors were and are nothing more than a parody on the true sovereignty of Yahweh. Because Revelation took seriously the world of the Roman Empire and declared it a blasphemous caricature of God's sovereignty over the world, we can take our own world no less seriously. And frankly, we need that message today as much as they did then. We can add to the list of, quote, the divine pretensions of pharaohs, kings, and emperors. We could add presidents, congresspeople, and sometimes even mayors who are nothing more than a parody of the true sovereignty of Yahweh. Today's text begins with the seventh seal, evidently the opening of the first scroll, and uh, because because. The seventh seal is open. You can now open the scroll. Up until this point, it's remained closed because you can't open it when one seal is off. You can't open one part of it. The whole thing, as we looked at last week, can't be opened until all the seals have been removed. And, and so we begin with the seventh seal being removed. And so what follows, we presume, is the opening of the first uh, scroll or of this scroll. There'll be another scroll that we'll look at at the end of our message today. Um, and it seems that within 
this scroll, once it's opened, are seven trumpets. A little bit like a Russian nesting doll. You know those dolls you can take and, and you open up one, there's another one inside, and you open up another, there's another one inside, and you open up another, and there's another one inside. Except they're not all the same. There are actually, I saw some at the uh, Russian Museum of Art, I think it's called, but it's in Minneapolis. Go figure. Um, but... but <clears throat> The, 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 the nesting dolls each look different as you went inside, and that'd be closer to what the book of Revelation does. As you open one thing, another one opens, and it's a whole new thing, and, and that happens, which is why it's hard to follow sometimes, to be sure. Um, but within, this first, in the, within the seventh seal are seven trumpets, and we're going to explore the text under three headings. Silence, sound, sweet and sour scroll. I didn't say roll, sweet and sour scroll. I realized today with the time change... That, like, we have the advantage of everybody got here on time. We have the disadvantage of your stomachs think it's now lunchtime. <laughs> you know? So there's extra communion bread up here. So if in the middle of the sermon you need something, just, you know, come grab a bite. We won't be bothered by it at all. Don't let it distract you. And uh, we'll make it through the end of the sermon. So there's some juice, too, I'm sure, in some of these containers. I help with the blood sugar. Anyway, silent sound and sweet and sour scroll. And... Um, uh, let's, let's begin under the heading of silence. We're going to read the first uh, five verses of our text. We're going to actually look at chapters 8, 9, and 10 today. So we'll do a lot of Bible reading. Hope you're okay with that. Um, and uh, we'll go from there. So, verse 1 of chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and, the seven, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar and in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, open our hearts and minds that we might hear and understand, see and perceive, and be transformed by your word. Through Christ Jesus our Lord, amen. In an article titled Awkward Silence, Krista Brown says that for Americans, typical pauses in conversation are a quarter to half a second. A quarter, so you're having a conversation. Typical pause is one quarter to one half of a second. That's how fast we keep our conversations going. Um, while a pause, say, in a conversation for Japanese speakers commonly reaches as long as eight seconds. For English speakers, there's rarely more than a fraction of a second of silence between speakers in a conversation, and when this stretches longer, people begin to feel uncomfortable or break the natural flow of the conversation. It rarely, rarely is any conversation in English separated by more than four seconds. I mean, that would be as long as it typically gets before people really begin to get antsy about the conversation, which is why I'm going to just stop now for half an hour. No. In any culture, half an hour of silence would seem like um, unbearable. I, I remember, we've done this on some of our fifth Wednesday nights of prayer where we'll say, hey, let's just take some moments of silence. And one time I, I, I said, we're going to take two minutes of silence. And I set my timer. I had people coming up to the mic to talk and speak before the timer went off. And I said, I'm, I'll let you know when the two minutes is up. They just couldn't bear it. I won't mention the leaders' names by, you know, by name, but I'm just saying... Uh, it, it's just hard to not fill the space. And, you know, imagine if one did gather for reading the, a reading of the book of Revelation. There, there, what's the guy's name that does such uh, really good readings? Um, I forget. But anyway, he's a great reader of Scripture. He just, it's, it's great to listen to. You enjoy it. He's on a lot of the, the Bible reading apps, and, and you can hear it. But imagine if you get to Revelation 8.1, and it said, and there was silence in heaven the space of a half hour, and they just stopped. For half an hour. I mean, <laughs> of course you wouldn't even keep listening. You'd, something's wrong with this, right? There's silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. But then imagine 
That that silence is followed by peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And which, by the way, earthquakes are not quiet. Earthquakes are very loud and noisy. We were in an earthquake once, and it uh, started with me jumping out of bed at the sound of what was an explosion because we were in a basement apartment, and you hear it from in the ground like that. And I like landed. I'm like, what? What's going on? Then suddenly I realized the the ground is shaking. You know, so we we started heading, but it was done before we got to the bedroom doors. So we're like, okay, good, but. It's kind of wild. That was a noisy... So, so this chapter goes from stark silence to like louder than any fireworks display you've ever been to. Like you're sitting, you're sitting at the mega center of that display. The extremes are, are, are there. So what is this silence? How would the first audience have read it? What does it mean for us? Silence for half an hour. It's common to explain... Um, this silence as a time of reflection on what is to come with the seven trumpets. And that's it's not a bad thought. I mean, it doesn't really tell us why there was silence in heaven for space a half an hour. So, you know, if I were imagining, then maybe, maybe it's to reflect on what's happening there. However, in a popular apocalyptic writing, which was available in the first century, we have evidence that the Christians were very familiar with it and read it and even used it as a resource. You know, we have we have study Bibles where you have the Bible and then you've got all these extra notes attached either at the back or in the columns or at the beginning of each book. Well, they had their own version of that. You had the Bible, what they called Scripture, but right there together with it, they kept other books that they considered historical and relevant to the, the, the Scriptures because they provided some sort of backdrop. So like our study Bibles, they had those. One of those such books would be the Testament of Adam, which was within uh, a bigger book. But anyway, the Testament of Adam... The first two chapters describe the praises of creation. They're listed by the hours of the day, and it begins the hours in a traditional Jewish fashion with the evening first and then the morning. Here's what's relevant to our text. Each hour is filled with the sounds of praise and the flurry of activity until the twelfth hour. The twelfth hour, the heavenly beings are silenced until the priests finish burning incense and the incense arrives before God. A lot of connections to our text, if you were paying attention as we read. I'll go over them in a moment. Jewish tradition held that the heavenly beings were silent during this time, even though the text doesn't, again, explain the silence. Their tradition held that the heavenly beings were silent to allow the prayers of Israel to arise to God's throne. The parallels to our text are striking. In our text, the silence is followed by the golden censer for burning incense, which is offered with the prayers of the saints, which rise before God. Same thing going on. We know that from chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, we covered it a couple of weeks ago in, in talking about this, that these prayers are predominantly filled with laments and even imprecatory prayers, calling out for God to judge and take vengeance for what's been done to those who have been killed by the empire. Okay, so they're the, they're the hard psalms, the ones we typically skip over, and we talked about that and why, and why we need to kind of rescue them and get them back into our worship, because there's important things that they help us with. But those are the kinds. How long, O Lord, we read in, in chapter 6, until you judge the inhabitants of the world and avenge our blood. So maybe, I, and I'm going to conjecture a little bit here, based on what we read in the Testament of Adam, based on what our, how our text parallels, I'm going to just conjecture a little bit. That maybe the silence is because we don't often hear God's answer to prayers like that. We know that He answers, but we wait. And maybe the silence is just our waiting and listening for what we never hear. But we have to trust by faith that He is hearing and He will answer. And that in the end, it will all make sense. It's a little bit like Job. I've been around me long. You know, I love the book of Job. I spent a good time teaching you know, 13 weeks on it here at one point. And what's fascinating when you get to the end of the book of Job after throughout the whole book, Job's saying, God, you got to talk to me. God, you got to answer to me. God, you got to you got to come and present your case because I think you're wrong. And so God shows up and he and, and, and Job's just like, hey, no, really, it's all good. It's 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 great. But but then the Lord speaks to him and says, Were you there when? Were you there when? But if you if you read through that series of things, one, it's all speaking to all of Job's questions throughout the book. He answers all his questions, except that he never gives him the final answer of how is it that you can do this? 
And it's as if God is saying to him, hey, Job, listen, like, I've got a lot more going on than you realize, and it's a lot more complicated than you think, but trust me with this. And we have to do that with God, don't we? We have to trust him with this. It's like the, the difficult things of life. We have, to, we have to say, okay, Lord, it's in your hands. But what do we hear? We hear silence. And we have to get comfortable with that silence because we live in that realm of mystery and faith. Amen? And again, that's conjecture. I, I, I acknowledge um, our text does tell us something, though, of how God does answer. The angel takes fire from the altar and mixes it with the incense and the prayers and throws it back to the earth, and then the noise begins. I mean, it gets loud and rambunctious. So somehow God is going to answer, and it is going to have an impact, and we can trust that for sure. We may not know exactly what God is saying, but we know that somehow the events to follow are In those events, God is righting wrongs for his persecuted people. And to be sure, when disasters happen, we would do well to remain silent as well, for we don't fully understand how it all works. I think the words of David Bentley Hart in his book titled The Doors of the Sea provide a necessary reminder in the aftermath of widespread calamity that sometimes we need to imitate the silence of this chapter. Speaking in the wake of the tsunami disaster that struck on the second day of Christmas in 2004 in Sumatra, killing not thousands, not even tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands. In the wake of seeing video of people clinging to poles and railings until they lost their grip and were swept away to death, of seeing satellite pictures showing whole villages being swept away in a moment, he writes this, Considering the scope of the catastrophe and of the agonies and sorrows it had visited on so many, we should probably have all remained silent for a while. The claim to discern some greater meaning, or for that matter, meaninglessness, behind the contingencies of history and nature is both cruel and presumptuous at such times. Pious platitudes and words of comfort seem not only futile and banal, but almost blasphemous. Metaphysical disputes come perilously close to mocking the dead. There are moments, simply said, when we probably ought not to speak. But of course, we must speak which he used to say, we, at some point we have to say something, right? But we ought to pause. We ought to wait. And that leads to our second point, sound. If it, if it worked with um, the alliteration of silence, sound, and whatever the next one is, um, <laughs> I, I would have titled this one a cacophony of agony, because that does seem to describe it well. Let's read beginning in verse 6 of our 8th chapter, and we're going to read uh, through chapter 9. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down to the earth, or down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. A third angel sounded his trumpet. A great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and the springs of waters. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that the third of them turned dark. A third of the day, excuse me, a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call in a loud voice, call out in a loud voice, Whoa! Woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given a key to the shaft of the abyss. 
When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass or the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill but uh, kill, kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions in their tails. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. They had a king over them, the angel, over them, the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. The first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from, uh, from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came uh, fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by... The three plagues of the fire, smoke, and sulfur, and that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. The plagues, as verse 20 calls them, while not one-to-one with the plagues of Egypt, clearly intend to echo the plagues upon the Egyptians. The first nine of the ten plagues, anyway, Especially since at the end of the plagues we read this in in verse 20 of chapter 9 again. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent. Does that phrase echo Pharaoh's what Exodus keeps telling us about Pharaoh? He still did not repent. He still did not repent. He still did not repent. Apparently plagues are ineffective for causing people to repent. Indeed they didn't work for Pharaoh and they're not working here. The first plague is hail and fire mixed with blood. In Exodus 9, we find that the plague of hail came as hail and fire, or hail and fire flashing, some translations continually. Um, As for being mixed with blood, we're told that a third of the cattle was killed. That's blood. So, yeah, there's blood. In, In the second plague, the sea turns to blood like the rivers of Egypt. And the third plague, it continues to affect the waters. The fourth plague brings darkness on the land, corresponding to the ninth plague in Egypt. Except it's only a third of the night. You know, again, this third thing keeps coming in. The fifth um, trumpet sounds, and within that plague are locusts. Now, we'll talk more about them momentarily, but just, there's locusts. Remember the locust plague in in, in Egypt, right? Um. Though the army coming from the direction of Euphrates is not related, it doesn't seem, to the plagues of Egypt, uh, it may have echoes to Pharaoh's army chasing the Israelites to the Red Sea where God delivered them. We'll talk more about that army momentarily as well. A key difference between the plagues of Egypt is found in this repeated term, one-third. Each of the plagues affected one-third, whereas in the Exodus story it affected the whole land of Egypt, except for the Israelites. The whole land, the whole land, the whole land. 
That's one-third, it's one-third, it's one-third. Does it indicate some increased measure of mercy? It might, I don't know what else it might represent, but it seems that there's an increase in mercy and not destroying the whole land with these things. It's important to remember that the purpose of these plagues is to bring repentance, not destruction. Even if the people persisted in their rebellion, the goal was repentance. How might the world of the late first century Asia Minor have influenced how this vision was understood? In other words, we read it as Americans in the 21st century. Western culture, prosperous nation. But if we could back up, you know, 2,000 years and put ourselves at their time, in their culture, in their world, how might that have affected how we read it? Well, I think it would. I mean, for one, mountains, which, you know, great mountains cast into the sea. Well, mountains typically represented kingdoms, gods and kingdoms. Um, Stars and heavenly bodies falling from the sky or being darkened often represented spiritual entities, angels and demons, as well as political rulers. You know, the, the, the familiar biblical phrase, not in our text, but elsewhere, the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light, often are symbolic in Scripture for the overthrow of governments, powers, and, and rather than being like solar eclipses. They're not, in other words, they, they didn't think of those things as literal darkening of the sky, but as the powers that be falling, becoming darkened, that upheaval. You know, our country goes mad every time there's an election. Imagine if you're going to have a king for like the next 20 to 40 years, Like one dies or somebody's taking over and you don't know what life's going to be like for the next 40 years, like the rest of your life. It could be miserable, it could be good. Believe me, the sun is darkened. The moon does not give its light. Confusion comes upon the land. That's their lived experience. I mean, even remember all the way back to Joseph's dreams. He had that dream where there was the sun and the moon and then the 12 stars. It represented who? Mom, dad, and the leaders of the tribes of Israel. So even that was in a governmental sense. And family, yes, but a family that became a nation, right? And then you've got this locust army. It's a, it's a familiar image from the Old Testament. I don't know. I mean, this, this does speak, sadly, to the, 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 the world of Christendom that I was in at the time. But how many of you in the 80s were singing that song? They rush on the city, they run on the walls. Great is the army that carries out his word. Anyone else beside me? A few of you? Okay, I, thank you for humbly admitting that. Um, I will shame myself. The, the reality is, is that song is taken out of Joel and the army that we're jumping up and down and dancing about were locusts that were coming to destroy the city in judgment. Like, why would we think about that? I, you know, it wasn't us, like some great army of God. No, it was locusts destroying the thing. They were a familiar plague upon the land and they certainly darkened the sky when they came. Uh, a bit ominous. We've been in a locust horde that was coming upon a land like a plague. We were in Madagascar in one year. I mean, it made the news in the United States, just to give you how big it was. But like, the sky darkens, and you see this horde coming over. And, and what was really bizarre, we were going into this very particularly poor part of town, and the horde is landing, and all the people are out there collecting them into bags so they can eat dinner. Um, so, a different experience there. Um, Verse 3 introduces the locusts, and they're some sort of hybrid, locust-scorpion, which then morphs in verses 7 through 10 into an image more closely resembling a zombie apocalypse of some kind. Uh, I mean, just bizarre descriptions. In, In the first century church, they were familiar with a collection of books, another collection of books. This one was called First Enoch, which is actually five books, you know. You'd think it'd be one through five Enoch, but no, it's first Enoch, but it's five books from different periods. One section of it, chapters 85 through 90, has the title, or at least it's been titled, The, the Animal Apocalypse. And it describes world history in symbolic form. For instance, there's Judas Maccabeus, if you know anything about Jewish history. Uh, he went against uh, Suclid, I don't know how to say his name, but, um, uh, and, and, and there was, there was uh, civil war, if you will very violent time, but he's pictured as a ram with a big horn, which is, again, an image familiar to the book of Revelation. Um, the, the following is in a book, it's called Reading Revelation in Context, it says this, the animal apocalypse, referring to that first Enoch section, 
is an allegory of the human story from the creation of Adam through Israel's history to the eschaton, the end, in which humans are symbolized by non-human animals, angels by human figures, and fallen angels by stars. The creaturely imagery has a logical pattern. The patriarchs from Adam to Isaac are bulls, Jacob and Israel is a, or Israel is a ram, and the people of Israel are sheep. So there's a lot more meaning than we might realize when Jesus says in John chapter 10, um, calls us sheep and refers to himself as the shepherd. And, and so there's, there's a lot more in that than we might at first read. This goes on. Gentile nations who oppress Israel are differentiated according to species. There are, for example, asses, they're the Ishmaelites, wolves, they're the Egyptians, lions, they're the Babylonians or Chaldeans. Um, so, in the animal apocalypse, hybrid creatures, such as these locust scorpions, they're kind of two things blended into one. Anytime you have a hybrid creature, quote, that stands on the wrong side of the boundary between order and chaos, clean and unclean. In other words, these things were evil. They, 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 they changed the order of creation, sending us more back into the chaos of Genesis 1, 1 and 2 before God put order in the world where everything, there's no life, everything is, is flooded and, and underwater and destroyed. Um, so these hybrid locusts that we're reading about in the mind of the first readers, it's on the wrong side of the boundary between order and chaos. They're therefore associated with the dragon, Satan, which is why they come out of the abyss, with the smoke rising from that abyss. Why? Because of the evil coming out of it. Okay. The locust-scorpion hybrids in verse 7, they morph into even stranger creatures, which, for the record, are not Apache helicopters piloted by hippies. I mean, you know, despite what we all heard in the 70s. I'm just saying, that's not what they were. Uh, the human faces of these otherwise horrific creatures reminds us of the close connection between evil forces and their human agents, those who do their bidding. The women's hair, most likely referring to its length, is interesting in that Rome's greatest enemy, the Parthians, on the eastern front, just across the Euphrates, yes, were famous for their long hair, the long hair of their warriors. And much like stories that existed after the defeat of, the Nazi, of Nazi Germany, you remember the, the stories of Hitler, like he escaped to Argentina and he's still alive. There are a lot of stories like that. Well, they had stories of Nero, who at the time of the writing of Revelation has probably been gone 30 years, but there were many, because he would have been young at the time that he disappeared, that he was still alive and was going to return. And guess where they supposed he went? To Parthia, just across the Euphrates. And that he would return, the myths went, with the Parthian army. A bunch of long-haired you know, people coming back to destroy the people. So these are the images that would have come to their mind as they're hearing this read in that audience, which, of course, we don't naturally think of these things because we're not there. Now, if you were maybe, you know, Jewish living in Europe in 1950 and you're hearing stories of Hitler being alive and he might return, that would affect you just a little bit differently. All right. Add to that that the king in this locust army, his name is what? Apollyon. Destroyer. Oh, and guess what? Nero was always identified with what god? Apollo. Just the, the, the sound association would have come to their mind as they're thinking about all of these things. These pictures represent the greatest threats to humans, whether believers or unbelievers, at that time in that space in Asia Minor, because they would have come right through Asia Minor. I mean, that would have been where they would have come from. And... and uh, it's war. I mean, war, never mind the threat of persecution of a returning Nero, which they would have had, increased even over what they had uh, uh, presently with the mission. But just the idea of war coming through. I mean, imagine yourself in the Gaza Strip right now. War is devastating. Imagine yourself in the eastern side of Ukraine. War is devastating. And I got a, friend, a letter from, an email from uh, our friend in, in Ukraine, and they're not even on the Eastern Front, but just describing what their daily life and ministry is like, how much it's affected by war, and the, and the ministry they're doing to care for people in that, which is amazing. 
Uh, but pray for our friends in Rivna, Ukraine, and the church over there all over, because they're facing these kinds of terrors. What do these revived plagues of Egypt mean to us? Well, Exodus recounts God's delivering power, rescuing God's people who had no power. God's delivering power, rescuing God's people who had no power. They were slaves. And rescuing them from the most powerful ruler on earth at that time, Pharaoh. In reality... What they contributed to their own rescue was that they got dressed for travel, ate a meal, and went for a long walk. That's what they contributed. In other words, they didn't lift a finger as far as the eye could see to deliver themselves from that power. To a people, namely the church in the first century, who have been told to love their enemies and pray for their persecutors, Suffering under the rule of the emperor and impoverished because they were unwilling to bow to Caesar, the promise that God will act on their behalf, that they don't have to act in violence against the empire, but can entrust themselves to God, is essential. Even if there's a half hour of silence where they don't really understand how God is going to do any of this. In a world plagued by death in the face of civil war and the rising and falling of leaders, wars and rumors of wars, which was the world they lived in, assurances of God's seal, of having God's name placed on us, things we looked at last week in the seventh chapter, is a great comfort. But what are the fears we face today? If I'm a believer in Ukraine, like I just spoke about, well, they're likely very similar to those of the believers and even unbelievers in Asia Minor in the first century. And we can rejoice that God's judgment on the wicked, even today, is seasoned with mercy. It's not entire. It's not even a majority. It's a third. Not a literal number, but a representative number. God's leaving the majority untouched by these plagues. But a significant amount is going to be affected. But... Truth, these are not numbers, they're people. You can't just think of it as, well, there's a third of mankind. Well, it's actually a bunch of humans. Might be your neighbors, might be you, might be your kids. Sahid and his wife, Mamona, lived in a small village in central Pakistan. This is a very current story. It's from one of the more recent uh, messages from the, the Voice of the Martyrs. Lived in central Pakistan with their six children. Sahid had been raised a Hindu. But his wife came to faith in Christ shortly after hearing the gospel from a Christian evangelist. As Sahid learned more about Christ through Mona's witness, he too placed his trust in Christ. Sahid's Hindu relatives noticed the family's absence from Hindu festivals and times of prayer. So they sent Hindu leaders to their home to urge them to return to Hinduism. But the couple remained firm in their commitment to Christ. A few weeks later, someone set fire to their house and their two youngest children died in the fire. Another child, one of their sons, suffered burns when he tried to save his younger siblings. For Christians in Pakistan, the images of Revelation aren't speculative, but existential. It's their life. They aren't trying to figure out if they are going through the tribulation. They understand that they are in it. Only prosperous Western nations have such questions. And that leads to our third point. Sweet and sour scroll. Not roll, don't get ready for lunch. Scroll. Read with me in chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. I'm like, what? Are you ever going to give us like a footnote to tell us? But no. <clears throat> then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and 
on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished. What will be accomplished? The mystery of God. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. I'll, it will turn your stomach sour, but your mouth, in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many people's languages, or people's nations, languages, and kings. A giant angel and a tiny little scroll. The contrast between the largeness of the messenger and the littleness of the morsel-sized scroll is glaring. Who is this angel? One foot on the Mediterranean Sea, and one in Asia Minor or the Roman Empire somewhere, land and sea, using the clouds as a shawl of sorts, and a giant rainbow as his laurel wreath. The legs are pillars of fire, the voice like a roaring lion. He may have echoed images created by the stories of the statue uh, Colossus, which had been long since destroyed, but it was gigantic as well. Many commentators say that this giant angel described with attributes belonging to God elsewhere, that, that this is actually Jesus, not an angel. Others suggest Gabriel or another angel closely associated with God himself. Like, for instance, angel Michael. The name Michael means one who is like God. So obviously has overlapping attributes, if you will. Um, maybe the point is not to figure it out since we're not really told. Maybe, maybe we're just okay with not really knowing. That might be okay. I'm good with that. I'm, I'm good with that. So, one reason some offer for connecting it to Jesus is that in Revelation 5, that begins with a mighty angel asking who is worthy to open the seals, the answer of the Lamb slain. So they make the association that that was sort of like Jesus, but it wasn't. Actually, they were just pointing the question. So I, I don't know that that's a very strong connection. Um. But that angel did introduce a transformative moment. That mighty angel introduced a transformative moment. And I, I wonder if this mighty angel is introducing a transformative moment. I'm going to suggest that that could be it. And, I, and, and I'm going to speculate a little at what we see in the text and what it might, that transformative moment might be. And, and, and when we get to heaven, you might find out that I was wrong and you were right, if you disagree with me, and that's fine. Or we might find out that I was right and you were wrong. And as long as we're both good with that, we're okay. I mean, because that's just reality. But I'll give you at least something that I think works with what we know from Scripture. The first angel reveals that the lion of Judah that they expected um, was actually a lamb who had been slain. Not quite what they expected, but that's God's fulfillment of that promise. The second mighty angel introduces a little uh, open scroll. Not all that significant of a scroll because it's little and it really hasn't been sealed. Like the other one, it was serious, right? It, it had seven seals. You don't want that getting into the wrong hands. This one has no, no seals needed. It's wide open. Anyone can read it. And it's small anyway. Just how significant could it be? But it turns out to be something much greater than it appears, something, I would argue, transformative. Now, what is this little scroll? John is told to go take the little scroll. So he goes to the giant angel holding it, and that angel tells him, take it and eat it. Which on the surface is the same command Jesus gives concerning the elements representing his body and blood. Take it and eat it. Which ends with, this is the new covenant in my blood. Could this scroll be the new covenant? If so, and by the way, for clarity, by New Covenant and Old Covenant, and I'm not referring to Old Testament and New Testament, 
Those are the books that spell those covenants out. But I'm talking about the actual covenant between God and Jesus as a new covenant. The covenant between God and Moses as the old covenant. The, the one that's in heaven, if you will, that we get told about in our books down here. Okay? So the actual thing I'm, I'm referencing here. Um, could it be the new covenant? If so, could the first scroll, chapter 5, the one that's sealed with seven seals, be the old covenant? Maybe that's a stretch, but work with me for just a moment. Notice the contrast between this open scroll and the sealed tightly scroll with seven seals. The first scroll being sealed could not be read or comprehended until the Lamb who had been slain opened it. Much like the Old Covenant, which was veiled according to Paul. And when the Old Covenant is read, a veil remains over the minds of the people, which is only taken away in Christ. It was until It wasn't until Christ's death and resurrection that it could be understood rightly. The Lamb slain who opens the seals. So I don't think it's terribly far off if it's off at all. The results of the events surrounding the opening of each seal of the first scroll were not stellar either. They were intended to bring about repentance from those who experienced them. But they did not repent, much like the Old Testament, which was intended to form the people of God, but it turned out just to keep hardening people in their rebellion and idolatry. Until they finally crucified God himself. In chapter 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands, and they still did not Stop worshiping demons, idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, or wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Again, not unlike the effect of the old covenant apart from Christ. This second little scroll, insignificant in appearance, it's not even sealed. It's plain for all to read. And next week when we get further into chapter 11, we'll discover that it has greater impact upon the nations than the first scroll had. That actually there is some repentance, that there is some change of heart. Though it's not thorough and complete, there are still those who refuse. And what does it mean, if if I'm possibly even close in my conjecture about what these scrolls might be, what would it mean then for John to have to take the scroll and eat it? And it's sweet as honey in his mouth, but sour in his stomach. It turns his stomach sour. And boy, how would that relate to the New Testament? (laughs) Well, actually, quite easily. Is not the gospel sweet in our mouths? Peter was no doubt on a high when he declared, You are the Messiah, the Christ, the, the promised coming King, the Son of the living God. But he objected to the bitterness of Christ going to Jerusalem, being rejected, suffering, and dying. Yeah, no, 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 not, not that. And then Jesus told him that anyone who wants to follow him must not stop at the sweetness of the gospel, but must also be willing to suffer on account of it, to take up their cross and follow Him. Are you willing to eat the scroll? When we take these elements, as we did earlier today, it is sweet to our taste. But if we really think about what we're eating and what we're saying, you see, Christ came and The way he brought life to others is he was broken and distributed. And when he calls us, he calls us to be broken and distributed too. It does at times feel sour in our stomach. If we're going to really live it. Are we we willing to ingest it? Not just taste it and spit it out. I think there are plenty of people who are willing to taste it, but they're going to spit it out because they don't want it to actually change their lives. I'm talking about changing our lives. Oh, don't swallow, whatever you do. Yeah, you don't want that. That'll upend your life. You won't be able to do with your time and money everything you thought you should do. You're going to be serving others. You won't just be hanging out with all your friends. You'll be hanging out with people that you wouldn't want as a friend. You're going to love them like family. There's a cost to following the Lamb in a world bent on idolatry and rebellion against God. There's a cost. If you're in the churches of Pergamum or or Thyatira, 
who had people engaged in idolatrous practices, the, the warning of these plagues, the consequences of the judgment, they hit home and they were a calling to repentance. Those in the churches that weren't facing persecution, I imagine Laodicea, for example, where everything was comfortable. You know, the kind of church we would all pick if we were church shopping. <laughs> Laodicea, that's my place, man. <laughs> all right, boy, yeah, I don't, no, I don't want to go over there, no. Not, not Pergamum, uh, or, or rather, um, was it uh, Sardis, I think? I get the two S, Smyrna, Smyrna. Yeah, not there. Not Philadelphia. No, those weren't churches any of us would want to pick if we just visited. But they're the ones commended. But if, if, if we're in Laodicea, we're not facing persecution. We're enjoying comfort. These verses remind them what's going to happen to idol worshipers who prefer their comforts to living in the new way of the true king. And those in churches suffering persecution are going to be encouraged by these messages to endure patiently, for God will vindicate them. Calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints is a a refrain we're going to hear later in the book. The church in America today has a heavy emphasis on the sweetness of the scroll, the gospel, but rarely talks about the bitterness that it can produce in our stomachs, in our lives as we begin to ingest it. There's something about the gospel that it, itself that changes when we make it all sweet and don't address the difficulties that it calls us to, that it, it actually becomes something other than the gospel. It's, if it's all sweet in our mouth, but we spit it out and don't swallow, it actually morphs into something different. And that concerns me about the church in a prosperous world, specifically the one I live in. Even my own take on it, it concerns me. Remember, if anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Lord, there are plenty of things in this book and even our text that they're not... Plain, they're not easy to grasp. But the truths of the gospel are clear. Help us to be a people who enjoy the sweetness of the gospel in our mouth, that we love it, that we, we taste and see that the Lord is good. But help us also to be a people who ingest it. And we become image bearers of our King who gave himself, and so we give ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.